This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, August 17th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Has American nationalism always been with us? What are its hallmarks? And is it really as dangerous as episodes of nationalism elsewhere? Historian Anthony Comegna argues that American-style nationalism has and continues to be about a sense of mission, of achieving a goal of national purpose. And his response is that there is no such thing as a national purpose. We spoke last week. There is this push, uh, and I spoke about it recently on a podcast with uh, Stephanie Slade of Reason and Aaron Ross Powell, uh, your former boss here at the Cato Institute, um, about conservative nationalism or national conservatism and how uh, they feel that they've lost the culture war and that uh, a lot of the institutions that they view as supremely important are being uh, denigrated uh, and perhaps to the point of being destroyed and uh, that that calls upon them to uh, invigorate an ideal of what they call conservative nationalism or national conservatism. And I guess my thought is, one, I'm not a nationalist. I don't view the interests of uh, the government of the United States as my own. I do not – it's not received wisdom as far as I'm concerned. I do love America. But in general, what do we know about nationalism in the United States and and, and where have we seen episodes of it that – uh, we can point to and say this is a, this is a really notable point in time uh, when a lot of people were considered themselves strongly nationalist and 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 to separate that really from patriotism that is subscribing to the ideals of the United States. Yeah, I suppose from my point of view here, uh, I was in high school during the Iraq War, and I sort of see an upswing of nationalism for the last you know 15 to 20 years or so now um, as one sort of coherent arc. Uh, and I think that's essentially because your rank and file Republicans and many people who were just wrong about the Iraq war uh, had to buy into the mythology surrounding it for so long to escape the the uh, proper and just outcomes of their horrible wrongness. Right, so they had to politically and socially, uh, some people economically, they had to buy into the lie and the myth of the war in Iraq um, in order to save their own skin or to save face with their peers in the country. Many of whom saw through it from the from the start, and I, I think that we're we're in a different stage or phase of that process now. But I think it should be seen as the same sort of generational arc of a resurgence of, of conservatism and nationalism you know, welded together as they so often are. And I, this seems to happen with some regularity throughout American history. I wouldn't put a definite period on it like some people try to, but it does happen with, with some regularity and for, for reasons that, that make sense once you sort of see it all stitched together over time. And I think really you have to go all the way back to, you know, the the Puritans and even earlier uh, American nationalism, or nationalism as it's expressed itself uh, in the Americas, has so often been about 
a special sense of mission. So you read the early imperial planners, people like like Bacon, and they're they're talking about the new Atlantis, and there's this you know incredible project that the British are going to unleash on North America and modernize the rest of the world uh, with their brilliance and all of their power and might. And you know, over time, this this also gets picked up again by the Puritans, and and they add this distinctly religious cast to it. But there's still this overarching sense of mission that drives them out to kill Indians and steal their land and burn witches and everything else. Um, and then by the 1700s, there's you know, especially in the, around the revolution and the the ratification of the Constitution, there's this new resurgence of a genuine kind of nationalism in the sense that the American people are a separate entity now uh, with with their own place in history and their own destiny to fulfill. Um, and they tended to look back at those Puritan fathers as uh, you know the the guiding light. But now we have to the the whole purpose of the mission is to preserve what we won during the revolution and what we put in place. You know, inspired by God uh, under the the Constitution. Now, you mentioned uh, this American destiny as this, and it's immediately, of course, strikes me as a is a collective mission. And I can remember people like uh, Woodrow Wilson talking about our purpose as a nation, and uh, that always, you know, gave me uh, some heebie-jeebies. This notion of a purpose as a nation, and that, but that always strikes me that that's what nationalism is: is is trying to define a, a a national purpose and then executing on that national purpose. I mean, Hillary Clinton herself, uh, from the other side, apparently, uh, talks about national purpose and national goals. And these are the things that that people should be focused on. For conservatives, though, you would think that a whole lot of what informs their worldview might tell them, oh, well, that's a bad idea. Government will corrupt this. Well, you might think that, but I, I don't think that conservatism has ever been an individualist philosophy. It's never looked at people as uh, the fundamental in, you know, units of social analysis. Uh, the individual's never, ever been central to a conservative point of view. And, he, and even today, this this national conservatism, conservative nationalism, I haven't decided what I'm going to call it yet. Um, even that is is an explicit rejection of classical liberal ideas. That is, as you say, the individual as the unit of analysis for social interaction. Yeah, I, I think purely for purposes of 20th century political history with the Cold War and with uh, history of race in America, we've had this mixed up view that libertarians and conservatives have something in common. Uh, and I don't think basically anybody believed that closer to the turn of the, the 20th century. And you've been making this point for some time. Now. I, for some time now, yes. Uh, you might say I'm trying to build a career on it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the the thing to recognize that libertarians should always be hammering away at is that there there is no national purpose. There is no state. It's just a bunch of people doing stuff. It's individuals following their own self-interest, whatever that might be. Some of them are ideologically driven, yes. But there is no such thing as a national purpose. And no matter how many you know, powerful groups of people 
want to tell you that at different points in history, such a thing simply does not exist. And that's fundamental. That point of view is fundamental to the way that libertarians are supposed to think about the world. And conservatives are should be fundamentally opposed to that point of view. For them, the fundamental unit of social analysis is either something like the nation state or the church or the family, uh, or you know, it could be all sorts of things depending on the, the context. Um, but it's definitely not the individual. There's some greater purpose above and beyond them. Um, and you know, looking back in, in American history, there's never been anything like a you know a unity of, of the American people. There's, there's always a tiny ruling elite and the great mass of people who have little to no say in how things are actually governed. And I mean, of course, we know that that's really how democracy works now, but that's how it's always been too. What about something like six to eight percent of the population ever voted for the Constitution? Well, who's, whose law is this then? You know, and I mean, that's a basic sort of Lysander Spooner point was it's been true always. And, and you know, some of my favorite stories from colonial history are of the people who escaped the colonies and ran away to the frontier to live more freely. People like uh, Thomas Morton in Marymount, modern uh, uh, Massachusetts, I believe, who uh, set up a colony which basically was an interracial trading post where uh, escaped slaves and you know free Africans and Native Americans and English all gathered together and traded and partied and intermarried and uh, there, you know, is even some evidence that homosexuality was openly tolerated in Marymount, and the Puritans came along and burned it, and said, "No, you know, we're on a mission from God to do this." And so, my favorite stories are of the the people who did whatever they could to escape the ruling powers that be, even in America, and to really make something uh, truly special on the frontier. And you know, Thomas Paine said, "That's what." the whole of the country should be an asylum for all mankind. Uh, he said this is a chance in the revolution to, to begin government from the right end, the, the, from the bottom up. And instead, we've always accepted the rule of a tiny, uh, politically entrenched, incorporated elite. If Lysander Spooner and uh, some others were uh, making this argument that uh, even from its beginnings, uh, the United States was not really living up to the promise of uh, a, like the Declaration of Independence or these uh, classical liberal ideas more broadly. Um, what were the arguments in response? Well, I, to me, the debate was mainly always about who is included in the people, right? Who counts and who doesn't. And, and that, again, heebie-jeebies all over. Yeah, the, the yeah. notion the notion that the people is a, is a characteristic that uh, can be effectively defined by some sort of central authority. Yeah, and you know uh, the states defined that however they wanted for quite a long a long time, a good eighty years or so, um, and you know sometimes the people only included property holding white men of a certain age uh, and a, a certain wealth. And sometimes it included women, and most of the time it didn't. Um, sometimes, you know, political groups at the state capitol would trade off women's rights for African Americans' rights, right? And even then, no chance ever getting African American women uh, an actual say in how their lives are going to be run. And you know, a huge number of the population is held as property, 
and others are crowded onto reservations, and immigrants' rights are restricted, and for a long time, the rights of Jews and Catholics were restricted. And You know, the people was extremely tiny. Only six to eight percent, again, voted for Abraham Lincoln for president. This has never been a government of by, for the people and all that, please. It's, it's nonsense and mythology. And I think, you know, we really need to, to hammer away to people that the vast majority of us are in no way represented by this system. And, you know, we should listen to people when they say that you don't count and that we're going to curtail your rights because you don't fit our guidelines for a respectable human being. You know, that this is not empty rhetoric. It's been enforced over and over and over again. And the whole weight of the national government has for generations gone behind, you know, it, raising and maintaining a slave catching force that was often turned to enslave free people. I mean, we, we can't expect that, you know, some uh, divine mission from God will overpower the will of the individuals that actually run this horrible state that we've been saddled with for so long. So you would argue then that the the people who are pushing this national conservatism are buying into uh, this mythos. I mean, they, they've talked about the, the fact that everybody sort of agreed on certain things in the 50s. And as uh, Aaron Powell pointed out to us uh, in a previous recording, well, yeah, if you were a white man of a certain standing in society, yeah, you guys probably all pretty much agreed on a lot of things. I'd say I'm fairly jaded about this. So my my, my impression of uh, these sorts of folks or other conservative theorists, let's generously say, is that they usually know that they're lying to people. Um, they usually know that they're telling a story and uh, that the story bears very little resemblance to reality. And you know, it's me. I, I generally have an eighty-twenty rule for people like Alex Jones, let's say, where you know, eighty percent of what he's saying is absolute, complete nonsense and incoherent, and then the twenty percent that sounds legitimate is what hooks people in, and they they steadily have to buy into the rest of it. Otherwise, they look like complete fools. Which is the nature of conspiracy theory, theorizing is that there's got to be just enough fact in there to get you in the door. Yeah, but I also think that's how a lot of uh, uh, social science and you know social theory, unfortunately, also works. Um, that the people who sort of peddle ideas are, uh, especially let's say you know at the popular level, um, not necessarily academics, but the the next layer of you know Hayek secondhand dealers of ideas. Uh, <laughs> They, they very often know that what they might be saying is, is wrong and dangerous, but it, it gets the most clicks. It sells the most books. It, it you know, causes controversy on campus. And oh my gosh, you know, then their, their YouTube channel spikes or whatever, and their Patreon account goes nuts. So I, but there has always been this uh, uh, push, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Hillary Clinton, among others, uh, pushing for national purpose, national goals, and that we all need to devote ourselves to this thing. And it's pretty much whatever uh, coalition they can get together in the government to decide this is the thing that uh, we're, we're going for. But is there, is there anything that we ought to take away uh, specifically, something potentially actionable? from these previous episodes in which uh, 
nationalism, and, and again, episodes is probably the wrong word because it's always existed in a way uh, in the United States. Yeah, I think, you know, I'd say that the main action item for us here um, would be to learn from the, uh, the clearest example in my mind of when libertarians have actually had something very serious to do with growing the nationalist sentiment in America. And that was uh, during the 1840s, the so-called Young America movement, which came out of uh, New York City locofocoism and um, the, the sort of swirling uh, uh, culture there in New York City as it was becoming the, the country's prime uh, producer of such things. And um, the Young Americans idea was that they, they loved Tom Paine and they loved William Leggett and locofocoism, radical Jacksonian uh, liberalism, if you want to call it that. And um, yet they also very firmly had this idea of mission for America in mind. And they thought it was to help republicanize the globe. And so they were tremendously excited, many of them at least. Uh, plenty of them saw through this from the start. People like Thomas Cole, the artist. Um, and he, he knew that if we embarked on the game of empire, even if it was in the name of republicanism, we would subject ourselves to the old world rise, decline, fall cycle. Uh, but the young Americans thought that we had new rules, right? We didn't have to follow the old world's rules. And they thought that we could welcome Texas into the union and it would be, everything would be fine. It would be this amazing example to world history of two countries voluntarily joining together in a new national project. They were amazed by the telegraph and its ability to link the whole country together with instantaneous communication as, as though you're in New York City, you know, uh, for the, the, the whole country would be like Manhattan, they said. Um, and these were the new cords of union that were going to bind the whole country together from coast to coast and create this amazing new republicanizing force in world history that would counter the British Empire and all this stuff. And instead, what did we get? We got the slaveholding president, James K. Polk, who cooked up a war to steal Texas from Mexico, to steal half of the rest of their country, to spend you know, blood and treasure galore for his own pet project to get another maybe five slave states. They wanted to make Texas into five slave states into the union and totally take over control of the government for the purposes of the tiny ruling elite in the South who held people as property. And that was most of their wealth. Most of their power was bound up in that. And they started a war and annexed half a country to do it. We should not you know, they, they did it with our support too. And we should take that example and absolutely not let that kind of thing happen again or continue. So uh, if I understand you correctly, it's a willingness then to call out uh, things that we find troubling within our own groups. Yeah. And I think do not build coalitions. Instead, just secede from Politics. Very, now, that's a terribly unactionable item, if you it's will. It's a very discordant view. <laughs> yes. But I, I think that the alliances that you make for some limited political purposes almost always come back to bite libertarians much worse than the, you know, the, the, the balance is far off the charts for the bad side compared to the, the limited and small amounts of good that you might get from it. Anthony Comegna is a writer and historian and former host of Liberty Chronicles, the podcast. 
Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.